people in boxing that want to say, oh, uh, it's a travesty, uh, you know, Jake Paul and, and Logan Paul for boxing is a travesty, and Mike Tyson doing exhibition is a travesty, and YouTubers fighting, and bare-knuckle boxing are all killing boxing. That's nonsense. Boxing has largely killed boxing. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of innovation, disruption, media, management, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, and we're going to change it up probably now and going forward as you listen to our podcast with some other hosts in addition to myself and my regular host, Tom Richardson. Today, we are being joined, because this is a subject near and dear to her heart, by Professor Carla Variali Barker. Carla, welcome back to The Cusp Show. Thank you. One of my favorite podcasts, and I'm really jazzed about our guest today. And we're going to talk, Carla, about a subject that is very close to you, but as listeners will find out as we go through this, is not about the bright side of sport. It's kind of about the dark side of sport with a guest, Lou DiBella, who's seen the best and the worst of the sport of boxing. No one can say he's not candid and authentic, but you're right. He definitely took the podcast in a different direction, and I'm here for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I encourage everybody to listen to it. Lou's had a tremendous background in other sports as well, in baseball, has produced films, has been around some of the biggest fights, helped build HBO Sports from what it was, from kind of how it came up, uh, and led in boxing under people like Seth Abraham and Ross Greenberg. But I think you'll learn a lot today, Carla, as you listen to this about a sport that is all about spectacle, but maybe the spectacle is too much. So we've talked a little bit about ownership, minor league baseball, media, fight sports a little, and that's where Carla really wants to kind of dig in a little bit. But our guest today touches on all those areas and then some. Welcome to the Cusp Show, Lou DiBella, the president and founder of DiBella Entertainment. Good to be with you. Cool. So, Lou, um, why don't you give us just two minutes on how you got to where you are and a little bit about DeBella Entertainment before we get into boxing, minor league baseball, movie production and everything else in the next 25 minutes? Well, I mean, I'm a Brooklyn kid who grew up loving sports. I went to law school knowing that I always wanted to get involved in sports or entertainment because sports was my first love since I was a little kid. And my two favorite sports from the time I could walk were boxing and baseball. Um, my, my grandparents, my grandfathers and my, my dad were Brooklyn Dodger fans that made me a Met fan. So I was a national league baseball fan and Muhammad Ali became my hero. Like the first time I saw him on television, the first time I heard him speak, I was like mesmerized. And I, I mean, I literally would, as before I was 10 years old, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I was listening to Ali fights on a round by round updates on a transistor radio hidden under my pillow. So my parents didn't know. So I always want to get into sports or entertainment. I wound up going to Harvard law school because I got in and because I figured that that, that credential, considering I wasn't a rich kid, I wasn't particularly connected to anyone in sports or entertainment. I knew how difficult it would be to break into those fields. So I was going to go with the best credential I could get. I went to Harvard law school. Um, I worked at a firm called Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, a law firm on Wall Street, not on Wall Street, I actually worked in the uptown office, but it was a Wall Street firm, great firm. I learned a lot there about how to think as an attorney, which was helpful in the boxing world, because God knows uh, it's a litigious, miserable, wretched, 
combative, <laughs> confrontational kind of sport and industry. Um, but I always want to get in sports entertainment. I worked at SNC for about four years. The entire time I was looking for a job in sports or entertainment. I actually, I, I interviewed in 1989 for the job as general counsel of the New York Yankees. I, uh, I talked to a bunch of Yankee officials, a guy named Arthur Richmond, may he rest in peace, and some other people who were then there. And I had all these great interviews. And I, I was told that I was a finalist. There were three of us in the, in the running. And I was supposed to go to the Bronx for an interview with the boss, George Steinbrenner. And you know, I got dressed for that interview the morning of the interview. Before I left my apartment, I'd taken the day off from my legal job. Um, before I left my apartment, I got a phone call. It was from Steinbrenner's secretary. She sounded sheepish and, and embarrassed and like hesitant to talk to me, but told me that George realized when he looked at my resume that morning that I was only in my 20s and that he wasn't going to have a general counsel who was you know, barely out of the, you know, the cradle. So, um, so he canceled the interview last minute. And I think that the secretary felt so badly for me that she mentioned to me that one of the other candidates I was interviewing was also interviewing for a job as the head lawyer for HBO Sports, um, you know, in the 80s, 90s, and, you know, the decade of the 2000s, HBO was the dominant force in world boxing. I was a big boxing fan. As soon as I heard HBO Sports, it clicked with me. Oh, oh my, that's perfect for me. I was already in my suit, so I snuck past security uh, in the HBO building and went, went in search of the HBO general counsel. Um, his door was closed. I started chatting up his secretary and wouldn't leave. And I think the guy heard me from inside his office and was so amused by my efforts that he let me come in and chat with him. Um, I told him that he was, you know, he told me he was about to hire somebody and they were about to make an offer that day. I said, you're about to make a big mistake. And I tried to sell him on myself. And uh, I think he was just humored by my, uh, my brashness and he sent me up uh, stairs to meet with Seth Abraham, who was the president of HBO Sports, mm -hmm. and at that moment in time, probably the most powerful person in boxing. And I, uh, I went to Seth's office. We were both Brooklyn kids. We both shared a love of not only boxing but baseball. I spent like an hour and a half in his office, and on uh, on the following Monday, I um, I got the job, and 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 my career in in boxing began in 1989. Um, I left HBO in 2000. Um, telling the uh, chairman of, of, of the network to go F himself probably <laughs> wasn't the best, probably wasn't the best career move of my life, though I thought, frankly, and still do, that it was deserved. Um, but that set me off into, uh, into establishing DeVal Entertainment. Um, I actually really wanted to leave boxing in 2000. Part of the reason why I was, uh, I was, I, I was sort of uncomfortable at HBO was that my entire portfolio was boxing. And though, you know, in the 90s, I was perceived as like, you know, maybe the most powerful person with the biggest checkbook, uh, you know, in the sport, um, I wasn't able to do anything else. And it's really hard to do boxing 24-7. It's a very unforgiving, difficult, emotionally and ethically challenging world um, for everyone involved, not just the fighters. So I wanted at HBO more of a portfolio. I, 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 was, I was in name head of programming, but I really wasn't making all the, calling the shots or making decisions except in boxing. And, um, and when I left HBO in 2000, one of the first things I did was invest in a minor league baseball team, 
that my friend was buying. Um, my friend went on to be a, a, an owner of the Texas Rangers. Um, but through him, I got to learn a little bit about the minor league bis- business. I in- invested in that team. And then a few years later, uh, became the managing partner uh, of a team that's now the Richmond Flying Squirrels, the San Francisco Giants AA team. Um, I later bought with a group of friends the Montgomery Biscuits, which is a Tampa Rays AA team. So both of our parent teams are out there fighting right now with a pretty good chance in my mind of winning a world championship. Um, and I started a boxing promotional company because I really had no choice because my exit package, the settlement I made with HBO involved me doing a non-compete um, with HBO and providing them for a number of years with boxing programming. So even though I wanted to get out, I immediately got real back in, um, mm. you know, even as I was leaving. So, you know, that was the genesis of, of, of starting the company. Um, I've been 20 years uh, uh, in boxing as a promoter since I left HBO, 32 years in total right now um, in the boxing world. Um, the managing owner of, of, uh, of two minor league teams, as we talked about, I have a production company and I mess around in producing documentaries and films. And, um, and I think, frankly, all the other stuff is what's allowed me to remain sane and continue to function with a chunk of my time in boxing for 32 years. Because if I wasn't partially immersed in these other worlds, I don't think I would be able to handle boxing as a full-time gig. Um, I think I'm long past that. Um, but that's uh, that's sort of the history, and that's where I am right now. Cool. So Carla, why don't you fire away with a couple of your questions you've been itching to ask, especially on the boxing side. Right. Well, did you, I'll ask you, since you mentioned documentaries, did you watch Ken Burns' documentary on Muhammad Ali that just came out? And what did you think about that? I did watch it. I, I, I should say it. I watched three out of four. So I, I, uh, I have to go back and watch the, the episode I missed. Uh, I'm a huge Ken Burns fan. I, he's a great documentarian. And, and um, I've never seen anything that Ken did that wasn't well done. I mean, there's some stuff that was more compelling than others. But I mean, the, the guy's a fine, fine filmmaker. Um, I, I do believe that this four-part documentary will stand as the quintessential Ali doc oh. from what I saw. Um, I thought the first episode was particularly interesting and powerful. It gave, provided a lot of perspective, um, some of which I didn't even know because, like, I mean, the Ali's became friends. I knew Muhammad well and, and Lonnie. Um, I got to spend a lot of time with him, which was amazing because getting to spend a lot of time with your hero and having him still meet your expectations and your, your you know, wow. sort of like childlike visions, um, you know, that was a wonderful thing for me. Um, so I, I thought the first episode was really enlightening. Like I know more, as much or more about, like I've read everything ever written pretty much. I've seen everything ever done. So there was stuff in this that, that, that didn't break ground to me, but I also thought it was extremely well um, researched and conceived. I thought the interviews and the subjects um, were excellent. And I thought particularly the, the, the first and last episodes to me were, were particularly powerful. The first one, because it provided a lot of background that even I, didn't fully know in the last one because yes. I think it synthesized a lot about his significance and how it transcends, not only transcends boxing, transcends sport in general. Fantastic. Um, can you talk to me a little bit? I know you've been involved in promoting uh, women's boxing. What's ahead for that aspect of the sport? Is that a fresh take for boxing? 
I mean, it's really shouldn't be anything more. It shouldn't really be a fresh take because it's just, you know, terrific athletes and fighters competing in the same sport. Um, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm frustrated because like I, I was, I've been a trailblazer in women's boxing. That's undeniable. And frankly, I've made almost no money over the years. And if you aggregate my investment in women's boxing vis-a-vis what I've, I've profited from it, I'm, I'm not even anywhere near break even. Um, yet most of the female athletes I've represented, worked with, promoted, um, not that they're upset at me or frustrated personally. Well, frustrated with me because I'm the person they directly deal with probably, but they know it's not my fault, but women in boxing have been screwed and, 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 and uh, provided with less opportunity than uh, women in, in most other sports. And frankly, women in the sports world in general are underrepresented, underappreciated and underpaid. So, um, you know, I, I'm a little frustrated myself. I, I, I think there's the, the quality of the athlete of the female fighter is getting better all the time, like every day. Um, every time there's an Olympic Games or a World Championships right now, you see that the talent level among the women competing is rising dramatically. There are more and more women that are inspired by the women that they've watched, even though the women they've watched have been vastly underpaid and not given the kind of platforms they deserve. Look, if you're going to pay women less, I get it. You know, but that does, you can pay them less without paying them unfairly. And, mm. and on top of that, the lack of opportunity is even more staggering. Uh, forget about the pay. There's so little opportunity uh, for women to be televised or streamed on existing platforms. Um, there are three major platforms in boxing. And um, one of them, uh, ESPN, pretty much follows the career of one female fighter only. Michaela Mayer is her name. She was a U.S. Olympian. She's really the only fighter that top-ranked boxing, which is the exclusive provider to ESPN, really the only fighter they work with. Um, one of the other three platforms has, hasn't done a woman's fight in years. And the third one, which is more concentrated uh, in Europe now and in, in the U.K., um, they do do female boxing, but there's a big emphasis on UK fighters. So for American female boxers, American female MMA um, artists, though they, they may be even more underpaid, are, are still given far more opportunity. And a star female in MMA can still get rich doing it, which is really difficult for a female boxer to do. And the lack of opportunity for female boxers in North America and in the United States particularly um, is staggeringly bad. Great point. Go ahead, Joe. Um, Lou, Lou, obviously when you bring um, female fighters into the ring or anybody you're trying to build, and we talked about earlier, that spectacle. Recently boxing has yet again come under the, the interesting place where we are, where it's more about, in some places it's more about you know, the internet stars and the spectacle than it is about the actual guys who are putting and women who are putting forward their trade. How is that going to be balanced going forward, in your opinion, in terms of, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, it's, not balanced. it's not right. balanced in any way right now, Joe. I mean, right. how's it going to be balanced going forward? Look, 
boxing's been its own worst enemy. And, um, you know, as team sports promulgated as the NBA, the NFL gained such incredible popularity, um, it was inevitable that boxing was going to uh, decrease in its significance in the pantheon of sports from where it was in the early 20th century, where really boxing and baseball and horse racing were the biggest sports in America. Right. And boxing now is, if you go on most of the major sports websites or internet uh, sources, you'll see that boxing is now almost, you know, in the category of other sports, you know, and um, yeah, th th there's been a lot of celebrity boxing and bare knuckle boxing and uh, 55 and 60 year old ex fighters mm -hmm. boxing Um YouTube celebrities boxing, go through the list. Mm -hmm. But it, they're not the problem with boxing. Boxing's been its own problem. Mm -hmm. And the reason there's such a promulgation of these, in my view, of these alternative forms of boxing is that boxing's done such a shitty job of keeping itself elevated, of making itself relevant, of promote adequately um, promoting the, the, the best fighting the best, adequately providing insights into who the fighters themselves are as people. You know, when we, we had the wide world of sports when we were kids, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, doing boxing and they would take you up close and personal. You knew who Muhammad Ali was, what he was about. You knew how different he was than Joe Frazier and George Foreman and who they were. Hagler, Hearns, Leonard, and Duran, they were four kings. They weren't just four fighters. They were superstars in the world of sports as much as Willie Mays and Henry Aaron and, and, uh, and Mickey Mantle were, uh, you, know, it, it, you know, way back. Um, you know, they were transcendent celebrity athletes. You know, they were the Michael Jordan of their sport. Um, and right now, 95, no, I don't want to go one step further. Almost every fighter in America could walk through Times Square dressed in street clothes and be unrecognized. Mm -hmm. Possibly find a, a stray boxing fan or two that'll come get their autograph or say hello. But the days where a Ray Leonard couldn't walk through Manhattan or a Tommy Hearns or a Duran or a Hagler or a Muhammad Ali or a Frazier or a Foreman, or even going to the era of Riddick Bowe and Evander Holyfield, Lennox Lewis, Mike Tyson. Um, there is no Mike Tyson now. And the closest thing to, to a, a superstar fighter that we've had uh, in recent years, Floyd Mayweather is retired. I mean, the UK boxing is way, way bigger in, in, in Great Britain across the pond than it is here. And they have Anthony Joshua, Tyson Fury. They have fighters that are pop culture icons in the UK that are transcendent celebrities. Um, those days for boxing uh, are largely gone in America and boxing's done it to itself. Mm -hmm. You know, so the people in boxing that want to say, oh, uh, it's a travesty, uh, you know, Jake Paul and, and Logan Paul boxing is a travesty. And Mike Tyson doing exhibition is a travesty and YouTubers fighting and bare knuckle boxing are all killing boxing. That's nonsense. Boxing has largely killed boxing. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, and it's worse in 2021 than it's ever been. And that's not due to the pandemic. It's just, it's due to the fact that we're in an era where more than ever, due to the anonymity of most of our best athletes and the irrelevancy to a lot of the general sports, casual boxing fan, the general sports fan, we need the best fights more than ever. We need the best to fight the best more than ever. We need fighters to fight. We need fighters who are willing to promote themselves. We need people excited enough about boxing to tell the stories of the fighters so you care about them because that was the key to the success of boxing historically. You know, boxing, the heavyweight champion of the world was the man. The heavyweight champion of the world was every bit Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, Henry Aaron and Willie Mays. And, and, and you know, in today's, uh, you know, baseball world, Mike Trout and Fernando Tatis Jr. The, the, the heavyweight champion of the world was the man, frankly, above team sports players. And, um, and now if you go to the general public or stop um, someone on the street and just say, hey, who's the heavyweight champion of the world? As many people are going to say Mike Tyson um, or Jake Paul as they're going to know that it's uh, Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury, at least in this country. That's ab absolutely not the case if you cross the pond. But, but boxing's done a job on itself. Um, it's becoming more and more difficult for me to justify, frankly, the energy, time, blood, sweat, and tears I give to the, to the, to the sport. And I, I think this interview is coming at an interesting time for me psychically and, and, uh, because I'm sort of in a place right now where I'm starting to have a lot of doubts about whether I want the last chapter professionally, personally, for me of my, of my life, because I, I just turned 60 during the pandemic, um, whether I want that last chapter to end with a lot more time in the world of boxing. And I'm not so sure about that. Wow. Carla, you have uh, one more you want to get in before um, uh, we let Lou uh, get to some of our final questions? Absolutely. Lou, I mean, what more could boxing be doing to be protect the health of athletes? Here's the problem. You have no idea how bad it is. <laughs> so it, it's, it's not a matter of giving you one thing. Yeah. Um, the state, uh, there is no commissioner of boxing. There is no federal boxing commission. State regulation are a bunch of political hacks were the same scumbags that we see ruining our country. And, and frankly, they don't have the time or energy to really try to protect athletes or fighters. There is virtually no testing for steroids. Cheating is rampant. There is no standardization of health and safety requirements across the 50 states. Forget about around the world. Most states require an eye test and an AIDS test. You could be knocked out 17 times in a row, which is an immediate indication that you shouldn't be fighting, that you're brain damaged, that you likely have CTE already, that you've been cussed repetitively, and still be licensed in most states. And, if, and, and by the way, if, if New York or California or Nevada, who are some of the states with the best health and safety requirements, not perfect, but the best, refuse to license you, um, some other state will, because there's no reciprocity or communication between anybody. Um, you know, fighters need to get head, uh, you know, CAT scans or, or MRIs before they have their first professional fight. So there's a baseline thing to compare them to. 
There's got to be a rule of reason. If you've not been knocked out a certain number of times, knockouts are by definition concussive incidents. You shouldn't be allowed to fight anymore. The barbarism of the state of health and safety in boxing, the lack of appropriate health and safety standardized regulation, it's as bad as it was when I started 32 years ago. And I testified before Congress about 26 years ago or so, 25 years ago, about the same things I'm saying to you now. And I can honestly say that things haven't gotten much better. So the answer is part of the reason why I'm losing some of my love um, and part of the reason why, frankly, at 60 years old, look, I got into the Hall of Fame in 2020 during the pandemic. I haven't had an induction you know, ceremony, but, but you know, that Hall of Fame induction, that Hall of Fame recognition, honestly, was the last sort of uh, the last you know, gold ring at the end of the stick that I was reaching for. Like there's really nothing left I feel like I need to do or want to prove in, in the sport. Um, I'm having a hard time justifying how I elected to spend my life and how much of it I dedicated to a sport that I, I love, but undeniably have a love hate with nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And it's become ethically, morally, um, it's psychically more difficult for me to justify the time I've given it already. And the realization that, uh, look, you can be you can be in something and know it's flawed, right? And still do your best to be a positive force in it. And I have tried to do that, right? I, I, believe me, there are enough pieces of garbage in the boxing industry. Liars, cheaters, thieves abound. I'm proud not to be one of them, and I'm proud not to be recognized as one of them. And um, I love the sport. I hate the business. I, I see how dark it now is. And it's making me question a lot of the decisions I made in, in my life. And, and, and one of the biggest frustrations I have is how unsafe it presently is, how rampant cheating is, how rampant corruption is. One of the great reasons why boxing, in my mind, has lost a lot of its popularity is due to all these, these sanctioning bodies. There are there there four to six or seven world champions in every weight class. So everyone's a world champion. Therefore, there is no real world champion. And the best don't fight the best. So a Muhammad Ali, a Mike Tyson, a, a, a Sugar Ray Leonard, a Roberto Duran, a Tommy Hearns, a Marvin Hagler, um, an Oscar De La Hoya, it's not so easy for them to emerge today because the sport is so fractured. And the best aren't fighting the best. And we haven't done anything to help health and safety. And you could watch a fight on television and you could take three six-year-old girls who aren't combat sports fans and put them in front of a TV and say, ladies, can you watch this fight and tell me which man wins? Often I would, no, not often, I would trust the judgment of those three little girls more than I would trust the judgment of a lot of judging panels in professional boxing. Because the, the often decisions, judging, the system under which judges are selective, under, under, with, under which um, fights are score, scored, uh, the system is innately broken and corrupt. So take a sports fan 
and put them in front of a, a, a TV. And they spent an hour watching a great fight. And then the guy whose name gets called as the winner isn't the guy they watched win the fight. That's not a selling point for your sport. That's not something that helps your sport grow. That's not something that helps you develop new fans. So I'm at a, I mean, I'm at a crescendo and a, uh, I'm at an apex of frustration and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and headiness over uh, what I'm doing with my life in boxing these days. So in wrapping up, first of all, never downplay the, the way you have kind of crafted your career and told amazing stories and worked with great people to get to where you are. That's a credit. I don't think looking back, Carla really gets us in a lot of places. But looking forward, Lou, you know, you talked a lot about the grit and kind of the, you know, the determination that you had just to get in the door. We've got a lot of people, many of whom probably won't work in boxing, but are looking for opportunities, whether they're recreating a career or starting out. When young people come to you, what's the message that you got from a young Lou DiBella from Seth Abraham or someone else that you continue to pass on for people who want a career in business of sports media or entertainment? Um, you know, I actually take those conversations pretty seriously. Like I, if I get a cold call or a phone call from a kid or someone in a sports marketing program or, or, uh, uh, someone who just got out of school or whatever, um, I had people over that four year period that I was at Sullivan and Cromwell, that I was a lawyer and, and I don't regret that experience. I love that firm and the people there. And I learned a lot, but I always wanted to get into the, my foot in the door somewhere. So I, I would cold call top executives and, and sports union heads and network executives. And the shocking part was there were a good number of them that took the time to actually spend a minute or two with me. And there were actually a couple that wound up being, if not mentors, certainly people I could call now and then to get a word of advice. And, and so I, I try to talk to as many of those people that, that reach out to me. Look, everybody wants to be doing something that they consider to be fun or that they're passionate about. And, you know, men and women who love sports are passionate about it. It's a big part of our lives. And, and even as a kid, you know, the number of people that want in the door for the stuff they consider to be sexy for their future, you know, like whether it be the music industry, film, television, acting, uh, the sports business, um, there's always going to be more supply uh, than demand. There's always going to be fewer opportunities and jobs and the people seeking them but it's 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 your resilience it's your patience and it's your ability to pay some dues and take some time doing stuff maybe that's less right on point with what you really want to do um in order to find your opening and your crack in the door uh, you need persistence to make it in the sports business or to find an opportunity um, I don't care, like, you know, I, I had, you know, I went to Tufts University. I graduated summa cum laude. I was Phi Beta Kappa. I went to Harvard Law School. And and I, I couldn't find anything in the sports or entertainment business to do uh, getting out of law school, including a sports or, or entertainment-related legal gig. So when I went to Sullivan and Cromwell, I was doing corporate work and real estate. And, and, I, and, and you know, my whole life I knew I needed to be in sports or entertainment, um, but I didn't stop looking and I didn't stop trying and I didn't stop networking and I didn't give up and I didn't get my break um, 
in, in the sports world until I was 29 years old, you know, which is still young enough, but it's a long ways away from college and law school, you know, so uh, network, start networking when you're still in school. If you see somebody, you know, it's amazing how people react differently to take a picture with me or sign this ball than they do have a conversation with me. Or can I ask you a question? Do you know what I mean? Yep. And you'd be surprised. Like, I think young people that want to get in to, uh, to the sports or entertainment realms, you know, if you have the opportunity, you're in someone's presence, feel like ask them a question, approach them, um, you know, cold call people, you know, don't be upset if you get nine phone calls that are unresponsive um, because you might get that 10th where someone's going to have a conversation with you that it can, can actually send you in a good direction or even sometimes change your life. So, you know, I, I think a lot of it's persistence, resilience. Um, you know, if you want something bad enough and, and, and you're passionate enough about it, um, if you have the skill set to do it, don't give up on it, mm -hmm. you know, like fight for it and, and scratch and claw. And if you can't, you know, like, for example, I knew that part of what I wanted to do, like if I, then once I got into sports or entertainment, I wanted to be a deal maker. Like I wanted to be a negotiator. I wanted to be a programmer. I, I wanted to, I didn't want to be a lawyer or a accountant or a scrivener. Like I wanted to be the guy sort of making decisions. So even when I was at the law firm, I didn't want to be doing like big merger and acquisitions deals where I was a tiny little part. Um, I negotiated leases and did real estate transactions and smaller deals where I did, I was involved in deals that were more general corporate work than they were specificity to securities or something else. Cause I was even in the back of my head thinking, what can I take out of the experience I'm now having that I can use effectively where I want to be, you know? And, um, I, I guess my best advice would be, you know, never give up. Well, don't give up on boxing yet, Lou. Um, this has been a really interesting I don't know if that'd be giving, Joe. I don't know if that'd be giving up. That yeah. might just be taking a shot at happiness. At this point. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, when there's, when, when a baseball player's career goes too far, um, he hits 190 and he looks like a shadow of himself and the sport forces him to retire. When a boxer's fight, when the fight's taken out of him, when he's been in too many wars, when he's taken shots to the head for years and years and years, the ramifications are completely different. Yeah. You know, I went to uh, one final story I'm going to leave you with if you have two minutes. Yeah. But I, uh, I got an invitation recently for the next fighter. I ran Barkley. Um, and there was a fundraiser to help him out. Uh, you know, he's had a rough journey, you know, in his post-boxing career and certainly has some onset of, uh, of some kind of pugilistic dementia, probably. And, um, and there was a fundraiser for him on City Island, you know, in late summer. And Mike Tyson was going to, you know, had agreed to go, uh, you know, make an appearance to help the race, raise some money for Iran and some of the other fighters who were more in need that were there. And I was, I knew a lot of people that are attending. So I decided, you know what? I'll take a ride over there and I'll say hello to a bunch of people. I haven't really uh, socialized around the boxing world 
uh, during COVID. So a lot of these people I haven't seen in a few years. So I went to this, I went to the dinner and I walked around the room with my mask on, glad, you know, shaking hands and having conversations with people I haven't seen in forever. There were probably 20 or 30, uh, you know, well-known star fighters from the, the 70s and the 80s and 90s who were there. There were an awful lot of local New York boxing people and New York boxing talent that I knew over the years, Golden Glove champions and people that spent years in boxing. And, um, and every fighter I talked to, every conversation I had, it was like something was clicking in my head just saying, well, damage has been done. Damage mm -hmm. has been done. I mean, there was virtually nobody in that room that hadn't suffered the consequences of combat sport that involves repetitive head injury and repetitive head trauma. Um, it, it was to the point that at one point during the, the brunch, I left the room, went out to my car, put on the radio and turned on a, a you know, some, you know, classic rock for 20 minutes just to decompress because I was literally like, emotionally wrought almost like uh like depressed and um you know I, i've been very outspoken about what's wrong with boxing probably one of the reasons joe asked me to do this in addition to the fact i've had a little bit of success and maybe i could give a few pointers to some kids that are that are out there trying you know in the sports uh, uh you know in the sports uh, education realm um but I, i've been very outspoken about the ways in which boxing can be fixed the things that can be done to make it better, et cetera. But I've taken a lot of criticism because I, I, I'm always getting those responses or DMs or, you know, Twitter responses or Instagram messages saying, hey, you've made a, you, you know, you made an incredible living. You know, you're, 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 you know, you're probably a millionaire and you're, uh, you know, you're sitting here talking about all these things that can be done and nothing ever gets done and nothing's better. They're right. They're right. And, and, you know, like I was intimating to you earlier, you could try to be a force for the better. It's better than being a force for the negative. But if you're in a system that's broken and a system that's dangerous and a system that actually can kill an athlete or put him into a premature, uh, you know, a, a, a premature state of dementia, um, is that okay? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm proud of a lot of things that I've done and I'm grateful to boxing because I've gotten to lunch with Mandela and discuss boxing. I've gotten to meet kings and queens and artists and writers and people that I never would have dreamt about as a kid ever having the opportunity to cross paths with. I've gotten to befriend a lot of these people and to know them and it never would have happened if I, I, I didn't have the career I've had in the world of boxing. Um, but there's a darkness to boxing that's undeniable. And, um, and I think boxing needs to do better because it's already descending. And if it continues to descend, um, I'm not so sure it has a right to continue to exist. And on that note, Lou DiBella, president of DiBella Entertainment. You can follow him on at Lou DiBella at Twitter always has an interesting opinion. Really, thanks for joining us and talking about 
a side of a business that, you know, usually people come on and they're very rose colored glasses, no matter what business they're in, Carla. Um, But, you know, the opportunity and the kind of career path that you've had is still one by far to be admired, whether it's in baseball, entertainment, building up stories, storytelling. Uh, And hopefully, hopefully we have you back on at some point soon and talk about a championship minor league baseball team and, and kind of the other side of it for three people from Brooklyn. That's yeah, right. You, know, you, 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 you got me at a bad time for me, but maybe a good time for this interview, yeah. or at least how interesting right. it might be to those watching it. But maybe the next time, it's more time talking about baseball yeah. or, uh, or my love for hockey and the minor league hockey team I want to buy uh, and stuff that's a little bit more positive. Yeah, no, this was, this was incredibly important to us, though. So, um, Carla, once again, thanks for sitting in for the first time of what's going to become hopefully many sessions going forward, especially as we deal with fight sports and law and women's rights and all the other things that, that people have been trying to talk about that we can create a forum for. So for Carla Variali Barker, I'm Joe Favorito. Thank you for our guest, Lou Dubella, joining us today. This has been The Cusp Show, and we'll see you down the road. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.